veterans, could you please stand? God bless you. God bless you all. Thank you so much. And as I said, today's a little bit unique. Uh, Brother Philip will be up here shortly preaching, and as he uh, preaches uh, six to seven minute segments, <laughs> you got the joke, didn't you? After that, we'll respond uh, through singing, through worship, and that'll happen three or four times as we go. And so you are uniquely uh, involved for the, this whole time. There's no, this is not a Branson so sit back and, and relax type of thing. This is be engaged all the time, amen? Which is what worship is anyway, right? And so, uh, so that's the, the way, the attitude we should, we should have today. And so as we start, uh, let's refresh our memory with where we left off last week. Let's read together. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. a new song. Just listen to this the first couple of times, and we'll ask you to join us. thousand generations falling down in worship, sing a song of ages to the Lamb. And all who've gone before us, and all who will believe, will sing a song of ages to the Your name is the highest, your name is the greatest, your name stands above them all. All thrones and dominions, all powers and positions, your name stands above them all. And the angels Hear your people sing. Hear your people sing. 
Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. The title of the sermon is, The Son of God, Superior to Angels. Listen to the Word of the Lord. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you... Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. I hope you can hear the magnitude of what's said here of Christ. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you, Christ, remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You, Christ, will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your, your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has, it ever set, has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool 
for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Well, last week we began to speak of the reason why the writer starts speaking of angels. And the introduction is in verse 4, of course, having become much superior. It introduces you to the most um, important thematic word. If you're going to give a singular word to the book of Hebrews, it would be better. Thirteen times the word better is used in the book of Hebrews, emphasizing, of course, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is better. And so the writer introduces us to angels, and we asked the question last week, why? Why was it? And we narrowed it down according to the text of Scripture, especially chapter 2, that the reason for it is he knows the audience he's speaking to, and they have an understanding of the mediatorial role that angels had at Sinai when God gave the law. Okay? It's not about angel worship here, or he would be combating that. It's not about some kind of uh, angel eschatology in the future that Mark... uh, Michael the archangel is going to rule over. That's not the, those things are believed by some, but that's not the emphasis is in Hebrews. So he's not in Hebrews. He's not trying to combat that. But what he is trying to tell them is that the mediatorial role of Christ is final. It is finished. It is far superior than anything that God brought to them in the law on Sinai, mediated by angels. Okay, that's the reason why they're mentioned. So. The contrast is valuable to all of us because the goal of the Word of God is to heighten your awareness of Christ. It's to help you have wonder and glory and comprehension of all that He has revealed to us in Christ Jesus the Lord. And so when you hear the contrast, we ought to all desire to take our places with the angels and worship the King. We ought to all, and that's why we're going to sing in between some preaching. Maybe not six-minute segments, but preaching. And so hearing this contrast, we take our position before the throne. We worship the king. We acknowledge his lordship. So there is no such thing as almost God. I hope you get catch that. And angels, despite their splendor, are infinitely less than the infinite God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ's place is on the throne... And the angel's place is before the throne. And I hope this glorious exaltation of Christ puts us in our place as well. Our place before his footstool. So our passage today presents seven Old Testament quotations that are words of the Father to the Son. Now just think of the magnitude of what I just said. What you're about to listen to, in most, most of what you're going to hear, is God the Father speaking to God the Son. I would want to encourage you to listen to what the Father says to the Son. It is very important. You're given, you are blessed today to be sitting in a congregation and the Word of God is being proclaimed to you and you're going to hear what God the Father said to God the Son in eternity past. I would call that very important. So we're going to learn something about the Son's name that he inherited. Right? Verse 4. We're going to learn seven absolutes of the character. I'm sorry. There's seven Old Testament quotations 
that are given to us about the character and nature of the Son of God. The first six are in pairs, and the final one is the climax. So six pairs of Old Testament quotations to explain the first three absolutes about Christ, and one given about that last absolute, which is the fact that he's exalted in heaven. So in Jewish thought, a person's name revealed the essential nature and the character of the person. It expressed his rank and his dignity. So Jesus had the name Son for all eternity. He's always been the Son of God. So understand that. That's his title. When Christ died and made purification for our sins, according to verse 3, and he triumphed over Satan, chapter 2, verse 14, the Lord God was enthroned and seated at the right hand of God. And when a king was enthroned in the Old Testament, it was an acclamation of who he actually was from birth. But the difference is Christ didn't have a birth. He's always existed. Now he had a physical birth on earth, but that's not what the writer is addressing here. He's addressing the fact that he has accomplished something in his life, death, burial, and resurrection that was new to him. He had always been the Son of God for eternity. But when he came to this earth, he entered into something different. He took on our human flesh so that he could die. Hebrews 2 tells us this. So, when he made purification for sins, triumphed over Satan, he was declared to be the Son of God, the heir of all things, in a new way. And so today, folks, he not only reigns as God by eternal right, he also reigns as the king because what he's accomplished in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. He's the king. He's placed in his place of authority. So the writer's response to his enthronement gives us these four absolutes. I'm going to give you all four, but after each one we're going to sing to his glory. Uh, our elders in training are reading Grudem's systematic theology book, and at the end of every chapter, guess what he does? He gives us an old hymn that's theologically sound, because old hymns can be untheologically sound, for instance. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Y'all know that one? I can feel his mighty power and his grace. I can feel the brush of angel wings. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, that freaked me out. <laughs> really? Really? You can feel the You wouldn't stand up if you did. And the wings? Come on now. All right. Anyway. We're going to sing... In response to what you're going to hear, we're going to sing good theological songs for you to understand first that he is the unique son of God. That's the first one. You are my son. When, when did God ever say that to angels? The answer? He didn't. Okay? So there's two Old Testament quotations. Psalm 2 verse 7 and 2 Samuel 7 14. I preach Psalm 2. So all of y'all should know that by heart. I've placed my king upon his holy hill. And then verse 7 reminds us, you are my son today I have begotten you. The writer of Hebrews just takes that and says, well, when did he ever say that to angels? So what is he doing? He's reiterating, he's summarizing what I spent all that time preaching to you in verses 1 through 4. There's a reason for it. Not just so I could preach 5 through 14 in one swoop, Right? But in 5 through 14, he's reiterating all these incredible truths about Christ 
And the first one is he is the unique son. And so what was Psalm 2 speaking of? It was speaking of a Davidic kingship that, that there would be a king upon the throne. But the writer recognizes that Psalm 2 is also messianic. In other words, ultimately, it wasn't talking simply about Davidic kings. It was talking about the Davidic Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer picks up on that. So, in Psalm 2, verse 7, God proclaims the Messiah is who? It's his son. Remember, he's the one that has always existed. To which of the angels did he, God ever say these words? And the answer is to none of them. So what is that underscoring? It's underscoring the profound uniqueness of the Son of God. The use of the word today. There's a lot of ink spilt on this. What does it mean today you have? You are my son today I have begotten you. What does that mean? Well, it's emphasizing the son's enthronement. If he's put his son on his holy hill, what does that mean? Well, when he was exalted into heaven, he took his seat. So this is kingship language. He's been exalted. He's been enthroned. And so he's at the right hand of the Father. He will use the, the term or again. See it in the text? You are my son today, I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Who is this set of? David. But who is it ultimately set of? The son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the connection? This is all kingship language. It is all addressing the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the messianic king promised from old, fulfilled right here in your understanding, reading the word of God. So, again, what does the word begotten mean? Some think it has something to do with the eternal generation of the Son. Not S-U-N, S-O-N. I reject that understanding completely. Why? Because Psalm 2 is about a king being placed on a throne. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is about a king who will follow after David, who will be on his throne, and that throne will be forever. So the author is picking up on sonship, and he identifies that the Lord Jesus Christ is installed by the Father. He's the messianic king. As a matter of fact, if you look in Acts chapter 13, I'm turning fast, you just listen. Here's what Paul will say in his sermon in Acts chapter 13. He says, in... Verse 33 of chapter 13. Listen to what Paul says. This is this he has fulfilled to us through to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul picks up on that same terminology that the reign of Christ commenced with his resurrection and ascension. Please hear this. He's not waiting to reign. Jesus reigns today. He is exalted in the heavens. He's greater than the angels because he reigns as the messianic king. So the next quotation applies a text again, 2 Samuel, to his kingship. He fulfills those covenant promises that a man will always be on David's throne. But it's deeper than a man. It's the God-man. It's the Son of God who's on the throne. So, again... Sonship is tied to ruling and reigning. So how do we put this together? The fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ has always been the pre-existent Son of God. He's always been God. Yet, 
He entered a new experience of sonship by virtue of the fact that he left heaven in his incarnation. He died a sacrificial death and now he's been exalted. And Jesus is greater than the angels because Jesus is enthroned as the Davidic king. Why? Because he is uniquely God's son. And as a son, he rules over all, just like Psalm 2 declares. The unique sonship of Christ is seen in his resurrection. It's seen in his exaltation. It's seen in his eternal rule of his kingdom. Remember the Christmas narratives? He will reign how long? Forever. He will reign forever. So the son is superior to angels. And since he is God and rules over all, why would the readers who are reading this the first time ever want to leave Christ? Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. Folks, can I not? I, I need to stress this. If he's not the unique son in your heart and mind and perspective, according to what the Bible says, you will drift away. You have to know who Christ is. That he is the son of God who's always existed as God. And yet he was willing to come down to make purification for your sin. Why? Because he is the unique son of God and he has been exalted in the heavens. And again, along that same motive, don't drift away. All right? Who, who mediated the law? Angels? Chapter 8, verse 3 of Romans. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Aren't you thankful? You couldn't live the law. The law, the law could not do something. It couldn't save you. But the unique son of God came and did alright now I want us to sing about his kingship about the uniqueness of the son of God this is application and if you don't sing we're going to do it again which means the sermon is going to be longer listen focus on the unique son of God worship him as we sing together
voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever.
writer would say to us in chapter 2 verse 1 therefore since he is the unique son don't drift away don't drift away from him number two second absolute the son is honored with angelic worship listen to the couplets again in the Old Testament chapter verse 6 and verse 7 again when he brings the firstborn into the world he says let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So, here's the focus. The contrast is on the positive but inferior ministry of angels. It's not that they're inferior. It's not that they don't have a ministry. They actually do. And, of course, you'll see the biggest part in verse 14 for you. But they are servants. And they worship the king. They worship the king. So Deuteronomy 32, 43 is a statement about angels bowing down. Notice this. In the Old Testament and worshiping Yahweh. Whom the writer in Hebrews now identifies as Jesus. Notice how important that is. The Old Testament identified him as bowing before the Lord. And the New Testament says the Lord that they were bowing before was the Son. That's why the writer is picking it up for us. Is that a pretty clear argument? Angels worship Christ. And then the addition of Psalm 104 verse 4, and I left that out, I think. Uh, yes, it's not Deuteronomy 104. You won't find it. It is Psalm 104, verse 4. And that's exalted language to describe the angelic host. Just hear that language. Angels, winds, and ministers of a flame of fire. That's, that's elegant, heightened language to explain angelic forces. Now, incidentally... The Bible doesn't present them as chubby little infantile creatures. When I see the descriptions or depictions of angels today, it just drives me crazy. They're soft, they're slim, and they're girlish. 
folks, I want to remind you that in the scripture, when an angel would visit anyone, it was always alarming. It always began with fear not, because you're shaking in your shoes. Do you remember what Isaiah saw? He saw literally burning ones before the throne of God called seraphim. And Isaiah was traumatized. Angels definitely can be awesome. They're mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament and over 160 times in the New. They exist in vast numbers. On one occasion, they're described as assembling in a great throng, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. That's a lot. That's Revelation 5.11. They enjoy the very presence of God. And they carry out the very purposes of God. Yet hear me. Angels are only servants in God's court. They don't equal. They're not even close. There's an infinite gap between an angel and Christ. Why? Because he is infinitely greater. He's the God. He's God. And he made the angels. So one obvious application of angelic worship is the fact that the first occurrence at his incarnation on the face of the earth, what happened? God sent forth the greatest choir the world had ever heard. You know, that is the first Christmas service, right? The day that the shepherds were in the field. And an angelic host came and they sang. In other words, in the first Christmas service, there was a choir that sang. And it's the best choir that's ever sung before. And what are they singing? They're singing about the birth of the God-man who they saw leave his throne in heaven and come to this earth. Just think of this for a moment. Angels long to look into the things of God, according to the Bible. The things of redemption and salvation. And here they are. Glory to God in the highest. Luke 2, 13. So Jesus was worshipped by angels in eternity past, according to the Old Testament. Right? We just read that. He is worshipped by angels in the, three and a half, the 33 and a half years he was on the face of the earth. And he is worshipped by angels in eternity present right now. According to Revelation chapter 5, 11 through 13. When you read that, it almost makes you dizzy. Myriads upon myriads of angels are worshipping Christ. The elders are bowing down before the Lord. And nothing's going on in heaven except the worship of the Lamb when you're in Revelation 5. So... Is worshiping Jesus a huge issue? The very angels of heaven worship Christ without ceasing right now before his throne. Is it a big deal that we worship Jesus? You better believe it. You understand that that's what separates Christians from Judaism. And as much as we pray for the Jews, and there's this little, no matter what your eschatology is, there's a little bit in the back of my mind as a Baptist that says you better not mess with that land. If you do, you're going to get bit. But God is more concerned about the people than the real estate. And I'm telling you, folks, even Jews have to bow their knee before Christ. They must trust Christ just like we have. So in Judaism, they don't worship Jesus. Do you, do you understand how, how vital this is for you to get it into your mind that believers... Join the angels, and worship is only reserved for the king. It's reserved for Jesus. So, that's what separates Christianity, Christianity from Judaism on one side, 
but also Islam, Islam on the other side, right? They don't acknowledge that he's the son and is worthy of worship at all, right? And it separates on the other side from cults that the early church would have known about being the Caesar cult. In other words, Caesar is Lord, right? And if they did not say that, what happened to them? They died. But they would rather refuse saying Caesar is Lord, but yet they would say Jesus is Lord. And when they did, they died for the cause of Christ. It also separates Christians from Jehovah Witnesses. They do not worship the Son of God as God. Folks, that's why this is so important. It's why it's so important that you understand that Jesus Christ is not Michael the archangel. Jesus Christ is God. And he is to be worshipped by us. So all these religions say Jesus is not to be worshipped. And that's understandable unless the Son of God is God. And he is. So he is forever to be worshipped, honored, adored as the king. All right. Are you ready to sing? We're going to worship him as the one who is worthy even of angelic worship. So much more so, us as redeemers, we ought to worship the Lord. Let's sing together. There are certain lyrics that we sing in worship that join us to heaven like none other. And we're about to sing those lyrics because they're being sung by the angels right now. Let's read together. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb who was slain Holy, holy is He Sing a new
He is uniquely the Son. Don't drift away. He is worshipped. He receives angelic worship. Don't drift away. Notice the next set of scriptures beginning in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, 
Listen to how strong this is. But of the Son, he says, who's saying this? God the Father. Of the Son, he says. And so the focus of the contrast here is on the Son's status as sovereign God versus an angel's status as a mere servant of God, ministering spirits. And what is so remarkable about Psalm 45, 6 is the fact that God is speaking to God. This is full-fledged, full-force, Trinitarian doctrine. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Here is God the Father speaking to God the Son. So, here's the Father speaking of the Godhead of the Son. Derek Kidner says, this is an example of Old Testament language bursting its bands to demand that this is going to be more than human fulfillment. It's going to be the God of all gods. As the Bible says, the throne inhabited is the throne of God and the Lamb. Revelation 22.1. And though that's a symbol of the established throne of God forever and ever. So Christ Jesus weds, welds together the symbol of royal justice with absolute rightness. Do you see it there? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Talk about a great, wonderful Christmas text. Listen to how Isaiah will say this. Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Verse 6 is also worthy of your attention. For, to un- for unto us a child is born. That's Bethlehem. But unto us a son is given. Right? He's always existed. That's the only way he could be given. Right? He was a child born. But he was a son given. So what Isaiah is recognizing is the fact that the Lord God loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Alright? You ready? What does it mean to love righteousness and hate wickedness? This is why the cross is so necessary. This is why there's no salvation if it wasn't for the unique Son of God who is worshipped by angels today. If sinners are to be saved, when God is just in all that He is and in all of His ways, a means must be devised by God Himself that meets the demand of justice so that God can be consistent with His nature and at the same time justify sinners like me and you. This means, the only means for the justification of sinners is the obedience and the sacrifice of the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him, the demands of the law are met. Remember, the the law in its flesh is weak. It couldn't do this. But in Him, the demands of the law are met. Justice is thoroughly satisfied. So that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 26. Hear me, folks. Angels may surround the throne, but the king sits on the throne. The writer will also use Psalm 102 to simply draw out what he said in verse 2. Isn't it awesome language? Do you know who laid the foundation of the world? It was the Son. The Son of God. 
Well, we learned this in John 1, 1, right? Have y'all forgotten that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there wasn't anything that was made that wasn't made by Him. And so this is a reiteration that through Him also He created the world. Remember that back in verse 2? It was Christ that created the world. This is a reiteration out of Psalm 102 that Jesus Himself, Christ, the Lord, the Son, laid the foundation of the earth. And he revisits this. And all of this language, I'm not going to read it all, but you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are your work. They will perish, but you remain, will remain. What is this? There is a distinction between the creature and the creator. There's a contrast that's given specifically between things that are permanent and things that are temporal. Are y'all listening? Creation will perish. I don't believe it's going to be by global warming unless God warms it. All right? But when he warms it, but he's going to end the world. He's going to roll it up like a cloth. It's almost like he can take the clothes off and put them right back on. That fast. And you, why do you stick with Jesus? Because he's permanent. And everything else in this world is going to go away. Every bit of it. You stick with him. When this present culture... Creation is rolled up like a garment. The sun will remain. He will not perish. Hear this, believer, when this cosmic order is shaken prior to the consummation of all things. You will remain only because he remains. You will endure only because he endures. Don't drift away. Don't do it. You can't drift away Why? he's the sovereign God. Who created the world. He's the sovereign God who's going to roll it up like a cloth. He's the sovereign God who takes away the garment and makes another one. And the Bible tells us he will. So, the Son of God is eternal. He's permanent. The created world will change. It will decay. It will face ultimate destruction. But his person is unending. His character is unchanging. His years have no end and knows no change. Trust him. All right, test yourself this morning. Do you love Jesus as God? Because that's what this text says. Does Jesus hold a place in your life worthy of God? I plead with you, love Christ. Worship him. He is God. He is to be worshipped. And do you have this sense in your own heart and spirit of the awe and reverence and love and trust and joy that you ought to have in this God given to us in this word. Is he your God and Savior and your master and your friend and your treasure? Are you earnest about him? Do you think of him during the day? Do you keep close fellowship with him in the day? So the point of this chapter and the whole Bible is to make you passionately devoted to Christ Jesus the King. That's what the Bible is about. So, he's the revealer He's the ruler, he's the redeemer, he's the creator. Let's sing the fact that he is God and he is Lord and acknowledge him. Listen, does this make a difference in your life? If he is the supreme God and he is sovereign, has he made a difference in your life? Where is his place in your life? When you list out your priorities, where is he in this? Well, according to Hebrews... He's number one, right? And he should be. Let's sing.
nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, O Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waves. Mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days, O Lord. The Lord on high is mighty. Don't drift away. He's the unique son. Don't drift away. He is worshipped by the angels. And don't drift away because he is, the, he is God, sovereign God. And one final one, don't drift away because he is the exalted son. Do you know this, where we, this is where we started? The Bible reminds us, after making purification for our sins, he sat down. And now we've come full circle, and this is really the climax of the argument. It is the Son's exaltation that should draw you unto Himself. He returns to where He started. Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty of the King of the universe, and as Son of God, He, sat there in, he sits there in power as the heir of all things and as God. Remember verse 8 here, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So, the seat... 
beside God is the seat of God. That's where he is. So he comes back to verse 13. This is his triumphant place. Sit at my right hand, Psalm 110, verse 1, until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he says, God never said that to an angel. Right? Christ rules. Angels serve. Did you know that this Old Testament passage, Psalm 110, verse 1, is quoted 14 times in the New Testament? More than any other, more than any other passage rooted in the Old Testament. No, no more passage other than this one. 14 times. Jesus even quoted it himself and applied it to his own trial. So, it is Psalm 110, verse 1. One day... Every knee will bow before Christ. And every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. All angels, as vast as they are in their number, both good and evil, will bow. And all the angels will be in that number. So, why? Because the Son of God is infinitely superior to angels. And they're going to bow before Him. Now, look at verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Mm. What's the contrast? Several things. Jesus is sitting as king. They are sent out as servants. There's only one king, but there's many servant angels. Here's another thing that speaks to you. They're servants of Christians. This text says those who by faith are inheriting salvation. Similar verse is going to be used in chapter 6, verse 12. Listen to it. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience will inherit the promises. So, those who are by faith inheriting salvation. Here's another thing to think of. Christ is over the church. Angels do the bidding for him for his church. That's clear. There's also an awesome cohesion in this last verse. Why? Notice the inheritance. Chapter 1 verse 2. The son is the heir of all things. Okay? Verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as to the name he has inherited is, more, is much more excellent than theirs. And then in verse 14, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. See the cohesion? The author assumes that the audience he's preaching to, which I think these are sermons, right? Inspired texts, but sermons. He's preaching to them and encouraging them. And he's assuming that his audience will understand what is meant by him viewing the totality of their salvation. Conversion is the beginning. Standing before the king and getting your inheritance is the end. And he's assuming that they understand what he's saying. In other words, their conversion is going to lead all the way to the end of a consummation of full salvation. So he is affirming his confidence that they're saved. That they know the Lord. So Christ purified you from your sins. That's the glory of our Redeemer. Amen. Whereas angels ministers on behalf, minister 
He purified you from your sins. But he sends forth angels to actually minister minister to the ones that he's purified from their sins. What an awesome reality. What a glorious reality. For those of us who believe in Christ, angels are sent from God's throne to work for the good of his church. That's why he does it. The angel of the Lord, the Bible says, encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Praise God. Psalm 34, 7. The angels of the Lord are sent to minister. There's no telling how many of your backsides have been protected because God sent forth an angel. And he does this. So think of this. The angels of the Lord are sent to minister protection and deliverance to the elect of God in their earthly struggles and all the way safely home to get your inheritance. He's going to take you safely home and he actually sends out some things, angels, to help it. Right? He's ministering to you. Right? Now, what I want you to do at this point is think about your salvation. That's the way the author ended that section. You're going to inherit salvation. So we view salvation as regeneration and justification. That removed the penalty of your sin. And then one day, the very presence of sin is going to be gone in heaven. Isn't that awesome? That's called glorification. But there's something in between. And boy, howdy, is there a lot of roller coasters in between. Right? It's called sanctification. And the writer is thinking about all of those. He's thinking about the day he purified you from your sins, which was before you were ever born or thought to be born. He made purification for sin. Eris tense, one time he made purification for sin. And then in time and space he saved your soul. The day you heard the gospel of your salvation, the word of truth, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But that's not the end. You started this sanctifying process where God is trying to remove out of you the power of sin over your life. And there's yielding in your life, right? But one of these days, you're going to receive that inheritance. John 3 puts it like this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that we, when we see him, we shall be like him. For we will see him as he is. That's coming. And here it is. Sanctification. And everyone that has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. So here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about the day you got saved. When you trusted Christ. And I want you to think about what God has done in your life up to this point. And I want you to think about the day you see him face to face. That's what the writer is saying. The angels of God are sent forth to help you get to that day. To minister to you. So we're going to sing one of my favorite songs called, I Got Saved. And I might just rapture. Or listen. (laughs) Let me take this as they come as a time to teach you something. Okay? All right? Can I do that as your pastor? Every song we sing is not one you should jump up on and stand. Just listen to me for a minute. 97% of the time when the word worship is used in the Old Testament, it means to lick the dust of the earth. So I would feel better about some of you laying on your face than jumping up and down. Now, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, okay? But since I'm talking about worship, there are some times when your rear end should stay in your seat and you shouldn't get up and you need to think about the God you're serving. And you can do that standing up. I get it. 
But just, I'm not telling you not to do that. I'm just telling you, be sensitive to what you're hearing. And sometimes it's, I want to get under that pew. I've tried it. You can do it. Look, that's the way you feel before the God that we serve. So, if you want to stand up, stand up. But if you want to stay in your seat, stay in your seat. It depends on, it depends on the, the song. It, it depends on what it's aiming at in the spirit. Is it causing you to bow low or is it something that cuts to the ear? It's praising God. Now, I don't know if my backside can stay in the seat when you listen to I Got Saved. This is glorious. So think back on it. To God be the glory. Let's sing. Emmanuel's veins The sinner was plunged Beneath the flood And God saved Since then I walk in forgiveness All of my guilt was erased The chains of the past I'm broken at last, I got saved, oh, I got saved. I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus. I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord. I'm restored and made right. He got a hold of my life. I've got Jesus. I could have one more. received nothing but goodness I've tested and tasted your grace I was so lost till I fell at the cross and got saved oh I got saved I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord Restored and made right, he got a hold of my life. I've got Jesus, how could I want more? The love of God, it gave me his pardon. The love of God won't let me stay the same. The love of God, it calls me up higher. His will is stronger. Why I got saved I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord I'm restored and made right He got a hold of my life I've got Jesus I've got Jesus I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord. I'm restored and made right. He got a hold of my life. I've got Jesus. I could I want more. I've got Jesus. I could I want more. I've got Jesus. I could I want more.
All right. Can you say that? If you're saved and you've got him, you don't need anything else. How could you ever want more? If you're lost today, he's the only way to heaven. Why? He's the unique son. All right? He's worshipped by angels. He's the sovereign God who made it all and is going to roll it up like a garment one day. And he's exalted to his place in glory. You can't go to heaven without Jesus. And when you have him, you need nothing else. So do you have him? Are you saved? Do you know Jesus as your Lord? Do you walk with him? Do you have confidence in him that he rules the world? Invitation. Brother David, lead us. On the first note, if the Spirit of God is drawing you, don't delay. And if you've been forgiven, and if you've been redeemed, sing the song forever to the Lamb. And if you walk in freedom, and if you bear His name, sing a song forever to the Sing a song forever and amen, and the angels cry, holy, all creation cries, holy, you are lifted high, holy, holy forever. Hear your people. Great God, your people are before you today and we pray to you because we have no one else to go to. 
you are the only one who hears and answers prayers. Lord, where else could we go? You are the sovereign God on your throne. You control all things. You are exalted in the heavens. And we're going to learn in Hebrews that the access we enjoy to you, Lord God, Father, is only through Christ. And we are so thankful that he's our advocate, that he intercedes for us without ceasing. And when our saints kneel before an altar, or when we stand in the pew and we pray to you, we're praying to a Father who hears. And we are praying through the Son who sympathizes with our difficulties in every way possible, yet he was without sin. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your advocacy on our behalf, the access we enjoy. Thank you for hearing the prayers of your people. You will answer according to your will, and we trust you. Lord, thank you for this hour where we heard doctrine and teaching and truth from your word, and we also sang to you because you're worthy of worship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We didn't take an offering up. Y'all notice that? And Baptists have to do that. So our ushers are going to come forward and take up an offering. So you guys come ahead. Brother David, you're going to make an announcement. Let's pray for our offering and we'll. Lord God, we just come before you. Thank you for this time of worship. Help, help us always daily to just be in your word and, to, and always be in response to your word by the way we think, by the way we walk, by the way we speak. And uh, Lord, thank you for this time. We continue in worship and giving to you in Christ's name. So we'll end with a couple of announcements. We just heard how important it is to think about what Christ has done for us. And I guess you would then say the second most important thing is to share that information with everybody we know. Amen? One of the ways we want to do that is through Back to Bethlehem. So you have these cards available to share with the community. So we pray that you do that. And, Pastor, we've got another Christmas opportunity. Yes, each year for the probably the last 
four years, maybe three or four years, we've done Giving Christmas. And so the school helps us with this to identify families that otherwise could not afford it. And so we as a church house those 35 families that we adopt. And so we serve food for them for breakfast and they're able to shop and we get the gifts together in buggies and they are able to have Christmas for their children and their family. Okay, so when you're buying for 35 families, it takes money. All right, so I'm asking you to give and help for giving Christmas. And you can designate things to that, money to that, and make sure that's taken care of. Uh, we will make sure everything you give goes to that. You can actually sign up as a volunteer to help us in this day. We need helpers serving food, wrapping gifts, because we wrap all these gifts before uh, on that particular day. And so this event is on December 16th. It's a Saturday, right? On the 16th. So I just encourage you. Uh, to help us out with giving Christmas, okay? All right, to God be the glory. It's been awesome to s- preach the word, sing the word. Tonight we have three more of our elders speaking. Kevin Patterson, Zach Easton, Jim Metcalf, all right? If you were able to be here last Sunday night, what a blessing it was to hear from the three before. And we'll have three tonight. Hope you'll come back. To God be the glory. You are dismissed. God bless you.